Well, let me say before I begin that um, the next food for the flock is out. It's on the back counter and the back table back there. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you to read these. Um, I do write an article, which I think is always strategic for our church, trying to give our church direction. Um, But oftentimes, page three is my favorite in here. It's a families in the flock. And the Kolaks are the uh, featured family this month. And uh, Dan Scott writes those up. So if he ever comes to you and says, boy, we'd like to do a story on you, can you please say yes, absolutely. And uh, it's just an encouragement to us all if we just feature a a family each week. So read that after the sermon. That would be fine, after the service. Maybe during the potluck. Maybe when you're standing in line back there, you can have that. Well, our, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 22, which is the... The parable of the wedding feast. And I simply want to affirm to you that I love weddings. I mean, I love the whole ceremony of watching the face of a groom as he sees his bride coming down the aisle. I I love watching the bride adorned in beautiful white as she comes to the altar I love hearing the vows of a man and woman pledging their their lifelong love and fidelity to one another. I love how this pictures the church of Jesus Christ. And I love the banquet afterwards. I like the the fun and, and the food and the cake. In fact, a week ago I had an opportunity to attend a wedding, which uh, some of you were at. And at, at the reception... They had uh, some of these things on the table. You know what these are? (laughs) I don't know what's wrong. They're supposed to buzz. There we go. And these were, imagine this, okay, we got a reception with one of these at every place where kids are. You can imagine the fun and festivities that took place. And what was, what was supposed to happen every time this took place, you know? What happened, Kim? Kiss the bride. I like that part too. That's a, that's a wedding celebration. It is fun. It is eventful. It is life-filled. And would I, I guess I ask you, did you know that there is a wedding feast awaiting believers in Jesus Christ? Do you know there's a wedding feast that's far, going to be far more pleasurable and joyful than a wedding feast that Perhaps you have ever attended. There are going to be far more people there in attendance than you've ever seen before. There's going to be far more joy, far more meaning, far more balloons and noisemakers, far more kissing and celebration. It is called, in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the time which the church of Jesus Christ, the bride, is married to Jesus Christ. Forever, for eternity, and best of all, you're invited. You're invited to come and enjoy that wedding. 
You're invited to come and be part of that wedding, to be the bride. And I simply ask you, do you want to come? How many of you want to come? I'm sure all of you do. I trust you do. If not, your heart's hard. In fact, in my mind, really, it's difficult for me to conceive of why anyone would not want to come to the greatest party ever thrown. There will be joys there that will far surpass even the greatest pleasures we ever experience here on earth. I love how John Bunyan, in his famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, puts it. Christians on his way to the celestial city and pliable had joined him for a season and and they had a conversation. Let me just read that conversation for you. Pliable is walking right along to Christian and the obstinate had just gone back to the city of destruction. But Pliable saying like, hey, let's go. And Pliable says, Christian, since there's none but us two here, tell me now further, what are the things to be enjoyed whither we are going? And Christian said, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue. But since you're desirous to know, I'll read of them in my book. And do you think that the words in your book are certainly true? Christian said, yes, verily, for it was made by him that cannot lie. Well said, what are they? And Christian says, and this is typical of what the wedding feast will be like. He said, there's an endless kingdom to be inhabited. Everlasting life to be given us that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Well said, and what else? And there are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. This is very pleasant. What else? Christian says there'll be no more crying nor sorrow for he that is the owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there? There shall be, we shall be there with seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look upon. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in His presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see elders with their golden crowns. There we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. And there we shall see men that by the world were cut in pieces, burned in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas for the love that they bore to the Lord of this place. We will see them all well and all clothed with immortality as with a garment. Bible says the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. Right? To ravish your heart. But are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? Christian said, The Lord, the governor of the country, has recorded that in his book, the substance of which, if we be truly willing to have it, he'll bestow it upon us freely. And that's why I say you are invited if you're willing to have it. If you're willing to trust that Jesus Christ paid the atonement for your sins, you will be there and enjoy the wedding feast of the land. And Pliable says this great, com- this great statement. He says, Well, my good companion, glad am I to hear of these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. Okay, you got to be a, pil- be a Bunyan fan. Come, let's mend our pace. Let's get on. Let's get going to that place. And I say, you're invited to that place. And I trust it's your heart desire that you want to come. But you know what? Not all who are invited want to come. 
It's inconceivable to me how that great place where we can go, we're invited. How many don't want to come? There are many who receive their invitation and they discard it. There are many who receive their invitation have no desire to come at all. In fact, it makes them even angry a little bit. And it's really this reality that Jesus told here in Matthew chapter 22. It's the third parable in a series of three which were meant to really provoke and attack the Pharisees of the day. The first one came in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. It talks about the parable of the two sons. The one said, yeah, I'll go, I'll do what you say, and then didn't do it. And the one who said, no, I won't, but then did. And Jesus said, you all are like the one who pledges allegiance to God, but doesn't obey and do what you say. The second parable was in verses 33 to 46. It is the the parable of the wretched vine growers who killed the son of the owner of the vineyard. And the message of that was very clear, right? The stone which was the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And he's talking against and about the Pharisees. And they clearly understood this. Verse 45, he was speaking about them and they knew it. And here we come to chapter 22. And in this parable, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast, which a king gives in honor of his newly married son. And he sends out invitations, but nobody comes. Nobody comes. And on one hand, it's a very discouraging thing. But it's worse that merely no one comes. Some of these people who were invited were actually hostile to the king. That they kill them for inviting them to the feast. Finally, the king is compelled to go to the streets and get anybody who will come. And even among those who finally do come, some of them dishonor the king in doing so. In many ways, this parable is exactly like the one we looked at last week. Here you have a gracious, kind, and patient man who's rejected by people in his kindness, and eventually they are destroyed. And we'll see these people who refuse the invitation to be destroyed. And so let's look. I want to look at this parable this morning through the lens, really, of the responses of the people. My first point this morning is that some who are invited are indifferent. Some are indifferent. The reaction comes in verse 5, but let's work our way down there, beginning at verse... One, when Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying he's really setting the stage with another parable, the third and last parable he tells them. In verse 2 we read that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Jesus here introduces the parable with a royal wedding. When the king's son gets married, it's a big event. I think back to the biggest wedding that I ever remember, June 29th, 1981. Do you know who was married on that day? June 29th, 1981. Who was married? Prince Charles, Lady Diana. How many of you watched that on TV? You and 750 million viewers across the world watched that event. It, it It was an event of the whole world when the king and queen were married. In Great Britain, it was declared a national holiday. 3,500 were invited into St. Paul's Cathedral and over 600,000 Londoners crowded the streets just for a glimpse of the wedding party. That's what takes place when a king gets married. 
It's a day of celebration. <clears throat> and back then, their wedding customs, it was a week of celebration when the king's son was married. And we read about the feast here a little bit in verse 3. The king sent out his slaves to those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. It's almost unfathomable. I mean, just imagine, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put us in the situation this would be. <clears throat> imagine that you hear news of one of President Bush's daughters, Barbara or Jenna, being married. You see that on TV, and all of a sudden you receive in the mail an invitation to join J- George W. at the ranch. Are you going to go? I mean, that's the closest thing we can have to the king's son getting married. It's the president's daughters getting married. Would you go if you were invited? I think you would. I, in fact, I'm not sure whether it matters whether you're a Democrat or Republican. I think you'd probably go. It's almost unbelievable what Jesus here is describing. People actually turning down an opportunity to feast at the wedding feast of his son. It's an opportunity of a lifetime. The celebration's tremendous. I mean, I just want you to think, you ever been to a buffet? I mean, whenever I'm driving down the road with Yvonne, and Yvonne oh, there's a buffet. I mean, like, I, my, my mouth starts watering because buffets are like my favorite restaurant. It doesn't matter what restaurant. It's, if it says buffet, I'm there. And I've seen some pretty big spreads at buffets. But the spread at the king's son's wedding feast is bigger than any spread you've seen before. I've been to some parties in my lifetime. I've been to some great parties. New Year's Eve parties, Christmas parties. But I guarantee you that the party that's taking place when the king's son gets married is bigger and more grand than any that you've attended. And these people are unwilling to come. You think they might even come just to enjoy the food and the festivities and the buzzers. In verse 4, we see the tremendous patience again and the kindness of this king. He sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Think about this. This is the third time that he's come. Great patience. First of all, comes in verse 3. It says they had been invited. And then in verse 3, they were summoned. And then here again in verse 4, the slaves were sent a third time to request their presence. And in fact, this third time, the slaves represented the urgency of how urgent it is that they come right now. Everything was ready. The oxen and fattened livestock had been slaughtered. In the Greek text here, the oxen, that is plural. Livestock, that just represents, you know, a, a bunch of cows. I'm guessing here you have to have at least four cows to have oxen, plural, and livestock slaughtered and ready. I did a little research this week, and did you know that you get out of a normal cow 600 pounds of beef? That's like taking away the stuff you can't eat. That's taking away the bones. It's taking away 600 pounds of beef. You think about four, you're talking thousands of pounds of meat for thousands of people to come and enjoy the party. And it's ready now. You need to eat of it. And here's their reaction, verse 5. They're indifferent. Amazing. They paid no attention and went on their way. One to his own farm and another to his business. 
fact, they said, oh, the party's good for the king. Let him have a good time. But for me, I've got other things to do. I've got a farm. I got this business. These things take priority over the king. What lame excuses is that? I mean, the king in the lands invited you to the wedding of his son and you prioritized your regular affairs of life. You know what? That pictures the nation of Israel exactly. Certainly they liked God when there was a need. They liked God when he helped them in battle. But there were many occasions when Israel was simply indifferent to God. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate here in this parable. I mean, I think about the time when Manasseh was on the throne of Judah. Manasseh reigning and ruling. We're told that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people But here it is, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10. They paid no attention. Here, God is speaking to you. And they're like, they're yawning. They're not paying attention. They're not listening. They're not taking heed. Just like ignoring Him. They're indifferent. Manasseh reigned 55 years of indifference. And the people of Israel were so ignorant and so ignored God that in fact they no longer brought their Bibles they no longer had the word. They no longer read it, even in public services. The Bible, you've been to churches, you know, even liberal churches. Oftentimes you see this Bible, you know, it's about this big by this big, and it's opened up, and it's collecting dust over here. At least they have an open Bible in their church. But at the time of Israel, they didn't even have the Word of God. In fact, things are so bad, they lost the Bible. And it took the boy, son, the boy king Josiah who finally got around to cleaning the temple 18 years after he began reigning. And do you remember what they found? Yeah, they're cleaning up this place and they look and they find it's, 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 it's the law. And they go, oh, this is the law. We have found the Bible. And they brought back the king, Josiah. They'd ignored the Bible for so many years that they'd lost it. And Nehemiah, during the exile, looked back upon these people and responded to the Lord. He said, Lord, we would not give ear to your words. Nehemiah 9, verse 30. Though God called out and entreated and pleaded for them to come, they ignored it. And I think about these lame excuses. In Luke 14, Jesus gives a similar parable Different people giving excuses. And maybe you've heard the song, I cannot come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. How have you heard that? I have, sing along with me. I cannot come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. I have married a wife. I have bought me a cow. I have fields and commitments. Don't trouble. Um, Something, something, something. I cannot come. You got married so you can't come. Well, bring your wife. You have a field. You think someone's going to steal your field? I have livestock. Well, appoint somebody to sit there and watch your livestock while you go and enjoy the feast. What lame excuses. When God invites you to His feast, you come. The activities of life are always going to be there. And I think about today how many there are who make excuses for their lack of spiritual interest. There are many today. Like I remember... Speaking with a man, going door to door with part of a church, you know, knocking on doors, inviting him to church. And this man said, oh, I, I'm not interested in the Bible because it's filled with errors. I said, really? 
Like, like what? Can you can you give me an example of that? Uh, uh, well, uh, it's just filled with errors. I said, can you show me one? He said, uh, why don't you leave? You know, and he cast me out and he slammed the door shut. It's an excuse. He didn't know. He just, I, I can't follow God because I think that there are errors in the Bible. Someone ever tells you that there are errors in the Bible, you just ask him which one, and um, you can pretty easily show that they're wrong. And come to me if you need help with that. I give you lots of resources on those things. I've spoken to some who weren't interested in religious matters. I remember golfing one time with this guy, and you know, in the process of golfing, you get a chance to talk with him. And I was talking to him about church and things like that. He said, "Yeah, I don't come. To, I don't go to church because a church is filled with hypocrites." And if you think that through, that is a lame excuse as well, because the existence of a hypocrite, something that's false, says that there is something that's true. It doesn't mean you have to be a hypocrite too. You can pursue the truth thing. It's a lame excuse. As a pastor, I get calls all the time. People looking for help. Us sometimes I got a call this week. Somebody, she said, um, Pastor, could you please put me on your prayer chain? I said, Well, what, what's what's the problem? What's what's the issue? And you know, she's got leukemia, and she's going in. She's had leukemia for a while, and she's been out, and she, now she's going to the hospital again tomorrow. And she said. But please pray for healing. And so what oftentimes I get when people are like this is I often, you know, ask them about, well, if, you know, what about the church? You, you attend church someplace that maybe they can really help you and support you through this difficult time? And you know what the answer always is? Well, I, I, don't, I, I don't really attend church at all. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I haven't found a church look in the phone book and just open up. There are hundreds of them. In fact, probably from almost any place we live in Rockford, you can probably walk to a church. But you know, people are indifferent. And then a, a crisis comes and they're all they're looking for God. Here's the offer on the table to enjoy a wedding feast. They have no interest. They create excuses for themselves and though the, interest, the invitation comes one, two... Even three times, they're still not interested, even knowing clearly of what will take place in the wedding feast. They're indifferent. Well, second response of people, some aren't indifferent, some are defiant. Some are defiant. That comes in verse 6. Look here. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Again, I think the interpretation of this is pretty straightforward. He's saying here the same thing he said in the parable of the landowner. The landowner was kind and reasonable and patient with people. And it was in the parable of the landowner that chapter 21, verse 35, we read that the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. They were unthankful, obstinate against the owner. They're rebellious. And in fact, they treated these slaves who are somewhat just the messenger. They killed the messenger. It's a reflection upon how Israel treated the people of God so poorly. In verse 6, is the same thing. The invitation goes out and says, Come, enjoy a feast with the king. And they're killed. Mistreated. It's always been the case. Last week, I gave you a few instances of how Israel hated her prophets. Let me give you a few more this week. When the righteous king Hezekiah came to reign, 
he, he said, you know, we've not celebrated the Passover for quite a long time. Because during the reign of Manasseh, you know, the Bible was lost. They didn't have anything. And so he said, let's celebrate the Passover. And so he planned this huge celebration back in Jerusalem for the first time in years. And so he sent these couriers out throughout all of Israel, throughout all of Judah. They say, hey, why don't you come? We're going to celebrate the Passover now in Jerusalem. And you know how those couriers were received? Second Chronicles 30 verse 10. They were some of people laughed them to scorn and mocked them. <laughs> Why would we do why would we do that? <laughs> you think that celebrating the Passover is a good thing? They were laughed as bored. You guys are so foolish. Why would we do that? God's not a real God. They just laughed him and mocked at him. A testimony. Second Chronicles thirty six, verses fifteen and sixteen. The testimony of Israel is this the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again. And again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. For centuries, God had extended to Israel an invitation to come and enjoy God. Isaiah had said, Ho, everyone who thirsts, Everyone who thirsts. Are you thirsty? If you're thirsty, God says, come to me and drink. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Incline your ear, come to me. Listen that you may live. I will give an everlasting covenant to you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Come, come, come. And what did Israel do? They despised the prophets and they hated him. Jeremiah said it like this. The Lord says, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you don't know. I'll cleanse you from all your iniquity by which you have sinned against me. And I will pardon your iniquities by which you have sinned against me. And by which you have transgressed against me. It shall be to me a name of joy Praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. He's putting out here the wedding banquet. He's putting out here just joys and happiness. Wine and milk and honey without cost. I was reading yesterday about um, Google. People are, are, are longing to work for Google. One of the reasons is because they're a wealthy company and they're doing very well. But you know at Google, they, they give free lunches to all their employees. It's a, right? You go there and you work and you just kind of buy your, you know, your, your honey and your bread and your meat and your drink without cost. You just show them your badge and say, I'm an employee, free lunch. People are, are longing to get there for that. God says, I'll forgive your sins. Come to me. Your sins will be forgiven. He says, you'll have peace with God and peace with others. You'll be a joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth. It's a wedding feast. And so what does God get in return for this gracious, kind offer? What does he get? 
he gets rebellious, disobedient, arrogant, and hostile people. It's how it's always been. The good news of the gospel, the grace of God in Christ, is always met with hostility. Sometimes met with indifference. A lot of times. A lot of times met with hostility. The early church knew many, many persecutions. The reformers were persecuted a lot. Several of us men in this church have been reading this book, Five Pioneer Missionaries. And it's just a book. As we think about missions at Rock Valley Bible Church, we're thinking, praying about going to Nepal. We thought it good to really focus the, the mind of many of the men on, on this book. Missionaries that went out and, and were a pioneer to work. Where there wasn't a work before, they went out and they, they labored in a place that was hard. We read this past week about William Chalmers Burns. And it tells here before he went to China of what took place when he went to Ireland. He crossed the Irish Sea and came to Ireland and he sought to bring the gospel to Roman Catholics. And it requires no small amount of courage, his biographer writes, and tact and temper, as everyone knows who's made the trial to address an unsympathetic and hostile Irish mob. Even today, Mr. Burns was exposed to many... I don't know this word. You've got to help me out. Opprobrious salutations. What does it mean? You don't know? It's bad, okay? Some bad greetings, okay? Derisive questionings, vehement denials of the statements which he made. So in other words, he's preaching up there and people are, are yelling back at him and saying, no, it's not true. You know, denying him, accusing him. And sometimes the uproar was so loud and long continued that he was obliged to desist altogether. Okay, let me just pretend. Let, let, me, let me try to try to preach. And you guys say, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, be quiet. Okay, everybody do that. I'll be like preaching. Okay, John 3.16 says that I can keep going. You've got to be louder. I can keep going. God said, God said that in His Word. And it, it got louder and louder and louder. And sometimes it got so loud that He had to desist. He had to stop. It was worse than that. It wasn't just people yelling. Often His clothes were torn. Can you imagine John Iverson coming up here and ripping at my clothes to tear them? <coughs> and when he was preaching, he was, he was preaching on a chair to get up above everybody. And it says this, it says, uh, let's see, where am I? Not seldom the chair on which he stood was broken. Right? You're going to go after him, you go for his chair. In fact, I read his later on in here that what he did, he had a pretty strategic deal. He had three of his friends behind him. So when the crowd came and pushed him over, he'd like fall back into his friends and they'd put him back up on the chair and so he'd keep preaching again. (laughs) But he was never impatient nor ever for a moment lost his self-command. Amidst the most noisy and turbulent scenes, his countenance was beaming with joy insomuch that some of his persecutors were constrained to say, he is a good man, we cannot make him angry. William Chalmers Burns. In many ways, people are no different today. There are many who are hostile today to the truth. I mean, every month we've given Steve Belanger a platform to bring before us issues of the persecuted church. And if you get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, this is, this is typical of persecution even taking place today. You know, this guy being beaten by Chinese people. 
I read in here this guy who was beaten bloody because he's at a church in a Muslim nation because they rang the church bells. Muslims came and went after them. This is the most recent issue here of Pastor Sergei Bessereb, 1961 to 2004. Here he is. He's playing his guitar. He, he, was, he was formerly a prisoner in jail for a long time. And then he became converted. God saved him. And he became a pastor. And he used to, for hours and hours, just love and adore his God. He was one night having his devotions. And uh, a guy came up and shot through his window and killed him. And here he is, his wife and mother over his tomb. And th- that happens today. In fact, next week is uh, prayer for the persecuted church Sunday. And we're going to pray for the persecuted church. We're thinking about Nepal and going and helping those who are persecuted in such a manner. It happens today when the gospel of grace goes out that people are hostile to it. Even in our country, there are people who are hostile to the truth. I think about the effects of the presidential election. You know, I even read some places in the paper, I think, something about how John Kerry supporters have like been experiencing depression because he lost. And one of the reasons why they are is they're lamenting the potential influence that President Bush might have on the, on the appointing of Supreme Justices in the U.S. Supreme Court. They're fearful that President Bush is going to use the abortion issue as a litmus test. And they hate that because they long for their abortion freedom. And they're fearful. And even they're planning now to make that an issue now that when that first judicial appointment comes, they're going to pressure President Bush not to make that a litmus test. I think about the homosexual movement today is strongly antagonistic to the truth of God. They use everything in their means to intimidate and press their agenda upon all. And people have always hated God and turned their back on Him because they're defiant. And so I've been trying to think through maybe the illustration about how it is that they refused to come to the king's marriage supper or why they were so defiant. I thought, you know what, the reason why they're defiant is because they hate the king. And maybe the illustration I mentioned earlier about the thought of attending a President Bush's daughter's wedding. It's only if you hated President Bush that you would refuse to go. In fact, some of you in this room might not be so fond of President Clinton. Suppose his daughter Chelsea was married. And you got an invitation. Would you go to Chelsea's wedding? I talked to Yvonne about this last night. I said, I probably would. (laughs) but I think probably the comparison in the minds of these people is suppose you got a wedding invitation from Osama bin Laden's son suppose they were getting married would you go there why not you hate the man and you hate everything he stands for and if someone comes says you're invited you might smack the guy I don't want to go. Of course you should know I want to go to that. But that's the only perspective you have to have to be defiant against the messengers being sent. And so that gives you a perspective of how people think of God. They hate God like you hate Osama bin Laden. Though he is absolutely kind and gracious and patient, they hate him. Well, their time will be up at some point. Verse 7, the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and sent their city afire. He could only refuse God's invitation and come and enjoy His wonderful presence for so long. There's a time where His patience, though He is long-suffering, there's a time when it runs out. And runs out, you will be destroyed. 
And that indeed happened exactly to Jerusalem. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. I read this week in Josephus, in uh, the history of the destruction of Jerusalem. He has pages and pages and pages describing how Jerusalem was destroyed by the armies in AD 70. The commander Titus came and there was much fire. Fire was sent to the temple. Fire was sent to, to many dwellings. Yeah, but they tried to protect the dwellings. Some Fire was sent to the city gates around Jerusalem. It burned in fire, did Jerusalem. And such is the fate of those who hate God. Well, in verse 8, our parable takes a turn. Out are those who are indifferent. Out are those who are defiant. In are those who at least are willing to come. Jesus describes the king here as inviting others who didn't initially receive invitations. Verse 8, it reads like this. Then he sent his slaves. The wedding is ready. But those, but then he said to his slaves, I'm sorry. He said to his slaves, the wedding's ready. Here's got thousands of pounds of beef and they didn't have refrigeration back then. It had to be eaten and they had to find somebody to eat it. He said, but those who were invited were not worthy. Israel, rejecting and being defiant and indifferent. Go therefore, verse 9, to the main highways. And as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out to the streets, gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with the dinner guest. The king's instruction them, as many as you find, go out to the streets. If they're just standing on the street looking like they're not doing anything, invite them. If they look like they're doing something, invite them. If they're moving, invite them. If they're breathing, invite them. Come, bring them in. It doesn't matter what they're like, whether they're good or bad. I've got a feast for thousands and I've got to fill it. And these slaves did a good job. They filled the wedding hall with different kinds of dinner guests of all different kinds, both good and evil. And I think that Jesus here is referring to the Gentiles just as he did in chapter 21. Look back there, 21, verse 43. I say the kingdom of God will be taken away from you because you're defiant, right? You're indifferent and given to a nation producing fruit of this. I think it demonstrates and shows the people have come forth in response to the gospel of Christ. When the Jews demonstrated themselves not worthy of the wedding, Jesus focused the attention of God came to the Gentiles. And let me just remind you, like I said last week, we get in because they were disobedient. We get in because of their failure to believe. And there's no reason for us to boast. There's no reason for us to feel proud that God has now come to us. He's come to us only because they're wicked. And they refused it. May we never boast. And may we never relax to think that, hey, we're in. We can live the way we want because even at the wedding feast, the king identifies one who ought not to be there. This is a third type of response. I'm calling this some are dishonoring. Some are dishonoring. I think that sums up probably best what verses 11 through 13 mean. Let me just read it for you here. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, in other words, evaluating those who came, he said he saw a man there not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come here in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. He didn't know. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a puzzling twist to the story. 
Here's a man who gets into the feast and the king notices that he came in there without his wedding clothes. And so he cast him out. And at this point, all types of discussion right, center around the meaning of these verses. Right, these verses aren't in Luke's version of this parable. They're unique here to Matthew and it causes many just to think. You know, they start asking questions. Well, how can this man get into the feast without his clothes? How can he be kicked out of the feast once he's in? What are the clothes? Why was it such a wicked thing to come without wedding clothes? Does it deserve this big a punishment as verse 13 describes? Binding hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness? These questions abound. I really think the best way to simply take this is always, as I always encourage you, take it at face value. Let's imagine, okay, you're down at the ranch, President Bush's um, daughter's wedding. How's you gonna, how are you going to dress? How are you going to dress? Karen, how's Phil going to dress? <laughs> no, he's a t-shirt. He's going to come in his nicest clothes. Imagine you came in jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers. What would that say to President Bush? No respect. It would be like a, an insult to him. And he might kick you out of his reception. Bye, Phil. However you interpret the clothes here, I think that somehow they represent a dishonor to the king. They're dishonoring to the king. And when you apply it to us, I think it's best to take this as a life that dishonors the Lord. I think this parable is describing to some who are apparently somewhat willing to respond to the wedding invitation, but do not respond appropriately. When you go to a wedding, you wear your wedding clothes. And I think they, you know, there's lots of different things. I've, I've just pinpointed maybe three points of application. These people may come in and may be unthankful the king has invited them to join in the wedding festivities. Unthankful. You know, perhaps people may be proud, thinking they deserve to be there in the first place. Hey, king, finally you came around, invited me. I'm glad I'm here making a life of your party. They may act wickedly, expressing their hatred to the king. Sure, they'll come for the free meal, but they'll continue against the rebellion of the king they hate. These types of things might be you know, applications for us. And I just say, listen, of all people, we ought to be the most thankful of anybody. And we need to understand that we come to the feast only because of God's grace and kindness to us. I mean, think about going to President Bush's daughter's wedding. Okay, what would you say? You get to shake hands with President Bush. What are you going to say? Hey, I bet you're glad that I'm here, aren't you? No, you're not. You say, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this. I mean, we barely know each other, Mr. President. And you get, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're going to be thankful, right? And that's how we need to come to God. When you come to the kingdom, you come humbly. And I don't think the description of these who've come to the Wedding feast is too far out there. I think they're Gentiles like us, right? They're on the street. They're on the highways. They're just standing around. They're nobodies. Even their righteousness is nothing to write home about. They're good and they're evil is clearly what it says there. They have no right to think highly of themselves. They were just kind of standing around when someone said, hey, you want to come? And like, well, okay, yeah, I'll come. And they came. And they came only because the first group of invited attendees rejected it. 
And I say, church people, there's no reason for us to be proud at all. We need to be humble. We were, like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's us. And the next verse says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's by the blood of Christ, by His grace, we've been brought near. Though we were strangers, we had no promises to stand on. God is exceedingly gracious and kind to us. We ought to be humble. We need to come to the Lord with purity. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And I think certainly, first and foremost, it probably speaks of the righteousness of Christ that closes by faith. I mean, the only way that we'll ever enter into God's presence of an infinitely holy, righteous, perfect God is if we have a perfect righteousness that's not our own. That's in Jesus alone. That's the only way. Without holiness, you won't see the Lord. And yet even there in Hebrews, I'm not sure whether the holiness he's talking about there is exactly only the holiness of Christ. When God saves us, He changes us and prepares us for His work. The Bible speaks of a holy character and conduct which is consistent with the people of God. When God saves us, Titus 2.14, He redeemed us from every lawless deed and purifies for Himself a people for His own possession. God purifies us So we can be, as the verse ends, zealous for good deeds. There is an experiential righteousness that the people of God will have. And maybe you responded to the Lord's invitation, because you all are invited, and I simply ask you, are you coming to the feast in a manner that's honoring to the Lord? Are you coming to the feast in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord? You might be thrown out. You're dishonoring. And again, we're not talking about perfection. We're just talking about a life that honors Him. And how do you honor Him as a Christian? You're repentant, right? The sin that you do, you hate. And you say, I hate that sin. And you plead to God and you pray constantly. God, help me. The the sin that I do, I wish I wouldn't do. God, the, the life I want, I can't, I don't. And so God, help me in that. And God will give you help and He will produce in you a measure of righteousness. That's the life that honors God. Not the life that's imperfect. I'm sorry, not not the life that has to achieve perfection, but the life that's constantly sorrowful for the sin that's committed and desires and yearns and pleads and longs to be honoring to the Lord. We don't want to dishonor God, do we? And I think this man was dishonoring God and he he was out. And the punishment is terrible. I mean, verse three, thirteen. that's describing hell. I mean, that's similar to how Jesus has described hell elsewhere in Matthew. I mean, the tares get thrown forth. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, in the furnace of fire. Right? The good fish and the bad fish. The bad fish get thrown into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And time and time again, this is what Jesus used of hell. If you're coming in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord... We need to come thankful. We need to come humbly. We need to come with holiness. Well, we have one last verse to deal with. Verse 14. 
I think it really answers the question, well, why is it that people won't come? I mean, they're invited. Why won't people come and celebrate with the king's son? Why are people going to dishonor God? And I think here comes down to here, verse 14. God is not out of control. He says, many are called. You have a New American Standard. There's a, a there. It's many are invited. It's the same word. When the invitation went out, they're called. They're kaleo. They're invited. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Right? When people don't come, it's not because they're not invited. Many are called. He said. And some of them are indifferent. When people don't come, it's because they're indifferent. When people don't come, it's because they're defiant. And some who come dishonor God. Many are called, here it says, but people come because they're chosen. And here's my fourth and final point. Some of them come because they are chosen. Some are chosen. It's the chosen one that gets to come and enjoy the feast. And when people don't come, it's because they don't want to come. But when people come, it's because God has chosen them and gives them a desire to want to come. This is the reality of the age of Israel. This is the reality of our present age. The invitation of the gospel has gone out far and wide. It's gone out again and again and again. It went out to Israel time and time again. If you just read through the Bible, I encourage you, read through the Bible with us. Maybe, you know, we're getting to the prophets or or next year or starting today. I think we're starting in Hebrews and then we're going back to the minor prophets, Daniel. And you'll just be impressed how time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, God calls out to Israel. Come, come, come. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Come in time and time again. Today, how many have heard the call of Christ to come for salvation? I mean, it goes out in many churches. It goes out in many people throughout the meeting places. You know, perhaps if you all are talking with people, the, the call goes out again and again. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. It's a constant message. Many, many are invited. And yet, only a few have responded to that invitation. Only a few have actually desired to come to the feast. Many have been indifferent and defiant and dishonoring. But you know what? God's not at all surprised by these reactions. Because though God calls many, there are few that He chooses. And thus, there are the few that actually come and enjoy His feast. Now, there are many people who hear this and they hate this doctrine. They don't like it. And questions start bing, bing, bing in their mind. They say, they think about God and they think about others and they think, who does God think that He is only choosing a few? Who is God that He might do that? What right does God... I thought God was a God of love. And wouldn't a God of love choose everybody? Is God really fair in this? Well, what about those who are chosen? Are they then puppets? Well, let me just say, I think this parable is a good balance for us. It teaches that people aren't puppets. It teaches us that people aren't in the feast because they don't want to be in the feast. The parable is clear. When people are indifferent and disinterested in God and more interested in their farms and businesses, it's not unrighteous of God to cast them out. It's not unrighteous of God to destroy them. They've refused His kind and gracious, repetitive invitation. And those who come, even some of those who come, are dishonoring to God. They're dishonoring to the Lord. It's not unfair of Him to 
rebuke those and send them into hell or dishonoring to Him. And so I encourage you, rather than thinking about this and all of a sudden start thinking about those who don't come, why don't you change your perspective a little bit and think about those who do come. I mean, rather than asking God about those who He didn't choose, why don't you start asking God about those who He chose? Then your questions sound like this. Lord, why'd you... Why... Why'd you choose me? God, why did you extend your grace and kindness to me? Why did you give me the desire to come? And then you discover, far from an unfair God, you say, what a God of love we have. That would be so gracious to me, a rebellious worm. We read in Romans 5 during our prayer time this morning, Romans 5.10, even while we were enemies, God reconciled us to Himself. Now, is that not love? While we're enemies is when He reconciled us to Himself. And when you realize what a tremendous love that God has elect and choose. You just got to say, God, I am, I am thankful. I am thankful to you. You have been so gracious. I mean, God, it's your choosing. I'm here. I thank you for your electing love. It ought to make you humble. I'm not anything special, God. There's nothing good in me. In fact, I know in my heart, plenty of evil abounds. I see it still. There's no pride in me. God, because it's all of you. I'll give you a desire to please the Lord with all of your being. Right? Your face ought to be in the Bible to say, God, you, you chose me and showed me the way of life. What can I do but to respond to you by reading this and doing what, what pleases you? God, I'm struggling here. I want to please you. Help me, Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Christ died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's the pleasing of the Lord. That's the honoring way to God. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.9 We have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him because of His grace to us. Well, this picture of the wedding feast is so appropriate for us because... We're not trying to please God to get anything from Him. We're trying to please the Lord because He's given us everything to enjoy. And for those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, we will enjoy the very things that Christian was describing to Pliable about the wonderful celebrations, the things we'll behold, the pleasures we'll have, the life forever that we will have. And I say, you are invited. Will you come? and enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord, how perfect does this parable picture Israel. How perfect it pictures the United States. Your invitation goes out far and wide, indiscriminate, inviting all 
who want to have their sins forgiven to come. How often has John 3.16 been shown at football games how God so loved the world He sent His only begotten Son. Those who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. How often have people turned their cable televisions on to a preacher proclaiming righteousness through Christ alone? And how many times have people spurned that and rejected it? How many times have people heard witness from neighbors and family and yet spurned it and rejected it? God, you've been so good and so kind and so gracious to us. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us the grace to respond appropriately, not to ignore you, not to be defiant against you because you are good and gracious. Your mercies are new every morning even as we began our service in Lamentations when the people were being judged. And Lord, may we live lives that honor You. Work in us, Lord, that we would please You in every respect. I pray that we would be a thankful people. I pray we'd be a humble people. I pray we'd be a pleasing to God people. God, not for our glory, but for Yours, as we can only express our love and adoration to You in our thanks. May this be the response of every heart. And if there's hearts here that have heard this invitation go out, and yet in their, in their minds are thinking, this isn't true. I would rather have my own lusts of the flesh. I'd rather pursue my own things. I'd rather pursue my business and my farms and my cows than pursue you. I pray, Lord, today you would convict them of their sin that tonight when they they put their head on their pillow that they would remember these words, which are your words, come from my mouth, and you convict them of sin, and they cry out to the only one who can save is Jesus Christ. We pray, that God, that you would do that work here among us. Have kids talk to their parents. God, of those adults, perhaps in rebellion, God, even confess their spouses. God, may in all the ways that we do, may you find the feast fully satisfying, filled with those who love and adore and please you. We pray in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.